0: So the first is from uh, 2 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, and I'll read that out to you, it's on the screen. Um, It says, we'll just knit back, thanks. Uh, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. The background to this passage, which was written by a man called Paul, was he was being accused of not being uh, an impressive speaker. And his his answer to his critics was to agree with them and say, um, "You are correct. We bear this treasure within humble jars of clay." So, and the background in the in the chapter, if you look at it, is is he, uh, Paul saying the light of God has shone into our hearts, the goodness of Jesus has been revealed, but it has been revealed into simple jars of clay, a a picture, a description of how our lives capture and hold the good news about God. This idea of jar of clay is not that positive. It's not referring to your favourite piece of china in your dresser that you get out when the queen pops round or, you know, the next door neighbours. The the jar of clay idea is referring to the common household pot. Uh, One writer says this, It's as if Paul has said, God's put his treasure into the wheelie bin of your life. It's that kind of idea. Or maybe imagine that bucket that you inevitably have somewhere in your house that you use for washing the car and the dirty jobs. It's as if God's saying, I've put my glory into a vessel like that. Or maybe a, a bowl you've got in your kitchen that's maybe chipped or scratched or bashed up but you've kept it because it still does the job. It's a humble thing and yet God has put his treasure in there. And the idea of being a jar of clay also reminds us that we are damaged goods in, in In the time that Paul wrote, the jar of clay that he was getting them to picture would have been inevitably a working utensil in a home. It would have been bumped, cracked, chipped and damaged, but probably still kept as long as it was retaining its functionality to be a holder of whatever needed to be put in it. Every dint in my car is a testimony to some error or mistake that I've made. Every scratch on my bike tells the story of a time when I fell off. This cut on my arm is a reminder from years ago when I knocked down that wall and really didn't know what I was doing with a sledgehammer. (laughs) That tear in your favourite jacket is before we married, darling. That chip in your favourite teacup. Every jar of clay carries a Upon it, the marks of its fragile existence. And of course, this is a picture. So we're really talking about divorce or abuse or illness or disappointment or failure or letdown, all of life's knocks and our personal failings, the things that we've done that aren't ideal, the things that were done to us that weren't welcome or helpful. each one has left a chip. Or a break on the pot of our lives. In the next chapter in in 2 Corinthians, Paul uh, says in chapter 5, he says this. When anyone is in Christ, uh, it is a whole new world. The old things are gone and suddenly everything is being made new. And so God is, is making new these pots of clay. And there are two ways in which something can be made new. It can be replaced you throw it away and get a brand new one that's the same. Or it can be repaired. Somebody repairs what's wrong with it and then it's good enough to be sold again. But even the idea of something being repaired is, is in our culture second best. If you go on eBay and you want to buy something, you can get it at a certain price. Or if you get a repaired or restored one, it's going to be cheaper. Because it's not as good. It's only being repaired it's only been restored. It still is marred by the fact that it is a previously broken item. Now, here's the point. This whole idea about being a jar of clay that's broken was turned around for me about a month or so ago when I had a chat with a friend who's planting a church in Kuala Lumpur. And he had a visit to Japan. And in Japan, he'd come across uh, an ancient Japanese art called... Kintsugi. I've probably said it wrong, but there you are. I'm going to stick with that pronunciation. Kintsugi. And Kintsugi translates as golden joinery. And you'll see on the pictures that come on the screen. It's the idea that you take a broken pottery vessel and you repair it with cement and lacquer mixed with gold or silver. And the philosophy behind Kintsugi, this, this, this uh, craftsman's repairing method is that the breakage and the repair becomes part of the history of the object rather than something that's hidden. With Kintsugi, a a jar of clay is being uh, made new by being restored to something that's even better than what it was before it was broken and the better looks the same except that what was previously damaged and broken is now beautiful and stronger. The old fault is visible but it's visible in a a glorious way that highlights the work of the craftsman who has restored it with precious tools. And some of you will know if you're handy with things like wood. Sometimes sometimes the glue by which things are repaired and joined is stronger than the material itself. This is true of these pots that are restored. Now, uh, in a minute we're just going to have a chance to think. And I want you to hold this idea that God is making us new. That you are a pot of clay that has the chips and cracks and knocks of your faults and sins of things done to you, of what you did wrong, what you couldn't do as well as you wanted to, the discrepancy between what it longed to be and what you actually are. All those things are recorded on the pot of your life. But God is making you new, and perhaps this is a brilliant way of seeing how he does it. He does it in a way that doesn't... Obliterate the story that got you to where you are, but doesn't glorify those things. And he does it in such a way that those, those lines of breakage and fault are not, not necessarily meaning <coughs> to be like limbs or limps or perpetual weaknesses, but may actually become the defining glory and strength of the object itself. And so if if any of you are crafting you want to make me a kintsugi, I'd love to give you a commission. Um, I haven't got a lot of spare gold lying around, but I'm sure we could improvise. Um, So that's our first picture. For the second, when I was a student, I used to work for the Samaritans and I also worked for the university uh, equivalent that was called uh, Nightline. Uh, you probably know Samaritans was set up by an Anglican priest and um, it exists to help people who are at peril because they are thinking of taking their own life um, or anyone, anyone that wants to turn to the Samaritans uh, for need. And it's named after the biblical story uh, told where somebody helps... A stranger at a point in crisis. And uh, uh, I loved, spent, I spent nearly two years working for them as a, a volunteer and loved doing that. And a lot of what Samaritans do is they listen um, to people. And that was one of the distinctive things, actually, that, that you, you, were, you were guaranteed to be available to listen to somebody at a point in need, either because they called in or they rang um, on the telephone. But ultimately, that became for me the reason why I stopped working for them. Not in any way t- to reject what they're doing. I still think what they do is brilliant. But if you were a Samaritan or you worked for Nightline, uh, you had to constrain what you said to the person that turned to you. Um, and actually, uh, that w- while I was, was a Samaritan, was also the period at the university when I became a Christian. And it became increasingly for me a conflict because of what I wanted to say to somebody at their greatest point in despair that might give them an idea about how life could be different. And Isaiah 42, which is our second picture I want us to look at, and verse 3, um, gives a description about Jesus. And it says simply this of him, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not break snuff out. So Jesus is presented to us as God who is always hope. Um, And I get a lot of very distinctive opportunities in my role as a priest. I work in a church office at the back of a church building in a city centre and the the nature of our location and and the centre of York etc. means that there are often people who kind of knock on the door And want to talk to a priest at a time of need. Now, actually, they probably don't necessarily need to speak to a priest. They could speak to anyone that works in the building. But usually at that point, somebody desperately wants to speak to a priest. They'll sit down with me, they'll normally call me Father. Um, I might have to say some special uh, expectations of familiar prayers that I, when I realise you're a Catholic, so I try and remember the Catholic prayers that they want me to say. But I, I love that opportunity to be able to talk to a person. In that moment, there is a great limit on the help that you can offer a person. Often they're, they're coming at, at a point of... Lots of things going wrong, or something big going wrong, or well, the thing that's going wrong is not sitting in the room in the conversation, but it's a situation, it involves people, sometimes it involves their need to go to the police, sometimes it involves uh, many, many years of things that have happened. And the second thought I want to throw in is not necessarily that startling, but I think is a very powerful thing. The thing that I always say to somebody in this situation and it's simply this that there is always hope and this picture that Isaiah said hundreds of years before Jesus was born predicting the Messiah it's picked up by Matthew as he writes about Jesus as he tries to describe in powerful words what it might feel like to connect with Jesus not denying anything else that Jesus has said or things that are said about Jesus but one of the things that any of us can confidently say about what it means to call out to Jesus is this he is the kind of god that if you're a bruised reed which means it, it's had a, it's been crushed and it's it's inevitably going to fall and crack or if you're a smoldering wick which means the candle is is inevitably just about to go out. He is not the God that will capitalise on that. He is, he is the God who is moved with incredible compassion for that desperate need. And actually, that means we have to turn to God because sometimes the remedy for someone's situation is, it, you know, it needs a miracle. And, and it, it may be actually that what that person simply needs to hear is that even if all these things are going to fall and crash as they look like they're going to, there still remains hope that God will not extinguish you. And just like the people that turn to the Samaritans that, I, having become a Christian, longed to say to them, but was duty-bound not to, that any person at a point in desperate need or any person contemplating a situation that seems like I have no idea how this could possibly get better, can turn to Jesus and know he represents hope. So for our third story, I need to introduce you to Sam Peterman, who's on the screen now. And she is a 15-year-old American high school student and she is a runner, and she is fast. She can run the metric mile in under 4 minutes and 30 seconds. She knows how to run the race, but she has a serious medical condition called NCS, Uh, and what happens with her condition? Blood pools in her legs, and after she's finished exercising, Uh, Her brain doesn't know how to make the blood circulate properly around her body. And this means at the end of every race that she runs, she faints and collapses, her blood pressure drops, and without the right help, she could die. And Sam runs her race, but she can't run without the guy in orange that you can see in that picture, Who is her dad? So today is Father's Day, and I want to honour Sam's dad, who's called Dale. And Dale Peterman runs the race with Sam. And every time that Sam runs, her dad is waiting for her at the finish line. And in fact, because of her condition, the way she blacks out at that moment when she stops the peak of exercising, she can never even remember the finishing of the race. She is dependent on her father to hear the story of what happens. And when she runs her race, and she runs as fast as she can, putting her body at risk, she can only give it her all because her father is there to catch her, And he literally, at the end of a race, catches her in his arms and saves her by doing the exercises that she needs as she blacks out in order to keep the blood going so she can carry on living. I haven't heard her mother's side of the story. Uh, I'm, I'm in another side of the story. In 1 Corinthians 9:24, the Apostle Paul again tells us that following Jesus is like running a race. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. And he's been saying in this passage that following Christ requires discipline, requires uh, focus. In this verse he asks us all to imagine that we are an athlete like Sam and we are training and running so as to do our very best in following Jesus as if that we win the race itself and cross the finish line in first place. The twist I want to put on this is the story of her father Dale who is the vital part. His name is not listed in her athletic achievements. He's kind of hidden in the photographs of her. She's well known for being a girl that can literally run that race and win it. And her father is the behind the scenes hero who literally keeps her alive so that she can come back and continue to run the race. Perhaps we've all thought about this gospel idea that following Jesus is like running the race. But I want to suggest to you that there's perhaps another way to look at it, which is this. Following Jesus is like being Dale Peterman and enabling someone else to be able to run the race set before them. And his role is simple, practical... Straightforward. He even says it's easy in the interview I read in the New York Times online. Um, but it's vital. She could not do what she does without what he does. And maybe she's running a long race. She might be out for you know an hour plus whatever. But he, those vital few minutes that he gives her at the end, make all the difference in the world to her. So we're going to um, do something in a minute, and I want us to, to, to work on that idea. We so often think about we, we are running the race, we should run the race, but there is another way to look at it, which is actually we enable others to run the race. And actually we all know in a community that often it's, it's sometimes the little things, that weekly encouragement, being there for somebody, the, 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 the av- being available... To somebody, giving someone advice or providing an opportunity or many things, simple things, where we become the support team that enables somebody else to be able to run the race of following Jesus.